Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1 is where we will be today. 1 Peter was written to a church that was going through an especially difficult time. Persecution had scattered them to all the regions of the world, and the Apostle Peter explains how to endure in such situations. And a key component is the fact that they did this together. The people that Peter were writing to weren't physically together, but they were united and bound by a hope that that brought them together, even when they were isolated. And that's true of us too. We may not be scattered around the world, but many of us are going through a difficult period of isolation. And by the way, perhaps your difficulty started long before you ever heard the word coronavirus. You've got a bad marriage, your job isn't going well, you've got health problems, something you're struggling with that that just won't go away, and your problem makes you feel isolated, alone. Together, we endure. We want to come together and we want to press into this common hope. I heard the story recently of when a herd of cows, since a storm is coming, they run away in the opposite direction. They, they run away from it and they scatter as they go. Of course, the storm always catches up with them and it's especially hard on them because now they're separated. By contrast, buffalo, when they sense a storm is coming, they instinctively do the opposite. They huddle together and they actually walk into the storm. I'm sure their cow cousins think they're crazy, but this actually gives them a few advantages. First, it shortens the storm for them because they're literally walking through it. Second, they find additional protection from being huddled together. Third, the the fur is thicker on their front sides than it is on their back sides, which gives them extra protection for warmth. Here's what this means for us. We're not going to run away from these problems. We're going to press into them, and we're going to do it together. All of Christ's armor is designed to protect you when you engage the battle, not run away from it. Last week, we introduced this book by explaining the key identity in 1 Peter. Do you remember it? I'll give you a hint. It's the title of this series, Exiles. Peter calls the people to whom he is writing exiles. Now, an exile is someone from one place temporarily taking up residence in another. An exile is not an immigrant. An immigrant wants to make their new place of residence their permanent home. An exile isn't like that. They may have to live in this place for a while, but their heart still belongs to their home country. An exile is also not a tourist. A tourist just passes through this new country with little concern about the people around them except puzzled curiosity. Peter says we shouldn't be like tourists either. We are exiles. We temporarily take up residence in a place that is not our permanent home. But we care for it, we invest in it, but we never lose our longing for home. What we saw last week is that if you live like an exile, do you know what that means you'll be? different. Do you know how exile is spelled in Greek? W-E-I-R-D. You're different. How can you not be? You're from a different place. You speak a different native language. You hold a different set of values. 
If you've been spending time with lost people and they can't tell that you're not from around here, maybe you're not. If someone tells me that, that they grew up in Indiana, but they've never played euchre, they don't care a lick about college basketball, and they think tenderloins are gross, I would probably say, I don't think you're actually from Indiana. Either that or it's been so long that you have completely forgotten your roots. If someone were to describe you and the word different doesn't come up, then you have a legitimate reason to doubt that you've experienced this new birth that Peter's talking about. Okay, you ready? Today we're going to dive in and we're going to look at these verses which show us the game plan for exiles. Let's get started. Number one, get dressed. Get dressed. Verse 13, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober. With minds that are alert. The Old King James Version translates this verse as gird up your loins for action, which is literally what the words say in Greek. Gird up your loins. In other words, dress for battle. Have you ever shown up somewhere dressed totally wrong? A few years ago, I got together with some friends, and uh, we went to go see one of the new Star Wars movies in the theater. And I had bought an extra ticket, and I called up one of my other friends and said, hey, I'll give you this ticket. It's free, but here's the thing. We're all dressing up as Star Wars characters, and you have to too, which of course we weren't. But <laughs> so we meet up at a restaurant before the movie, and uh, he walks in wearing a Darth Vader costume. And he comes up to us and he says, where are your costumes? I said, gotcha. Now that's all fun and games, but showing up somewhere dressed wrongly can really hurt you in the wrong situation. Imagine if a friend comes up to you and, and they ask you to come over to help them do some construction work and you show up thinking that they've invited you to a dinner party. And so you're wearing loafers and a sweater vest, but what you need are work boots and jeans. The worst would be to show up for battle dressed for leisure. Your opponent is suited up in, in, in all kinds of gear and weaponry, and you got a, you got a towel and, and flip-flops. Yet this is exactly what many Christians do when it comes to spiritual things, Peter says. They don't take this battle seriously. They're lazy in their approach to Scripture. They rarely pray and plead for God's strength. They don't take temptation seriously. They have no accountability. They, they often flirt with sin. They treat sin and compromise in their lives lightly. The, the bad thing with most sin is not the action in itself, but the fact that it gives Satan a foothold in your life. By the way, I'm talking to somebody out there right now that is entertaining a sin. You're compromising. You're looking at pornography. You're in a relationship that your godly friends are concerned about. You're starting a relationship that's wrong. You're doing something unethical, whatever it is, and you have given the devil a foothold into your life, and he's going to destroy you with it. And so I'm telling you from the Holy Spirit, don't play around. Some Christian parents don't take seriously the battle that's going on for their kids' hearts. I don't care if it's public school, private school, or homeschool. God holds you responsible for the shaping of their hearts and, and to protect them from the lies of the enemy that he's trying to seduce them with. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8 that, that, that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
Now listen, if there were some kind of predator on the loose in my neighborhood and I let my kids go out completely unsupervised, how would I not be considered a delinquent parent? And I'm telling you, a far more dangerous enemy than any predator is coming to hurt your child, to hunt your child. His name is Satan, and he's using the winsome lies of the culture to destroy them. Wake up and get dressed. Clothe your mind in Scripture and bathe your hearts in prayer. Number two, lift your eyes. Verse 13 continues. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. We spent some time talking about this last week, but Peter is urging us to set our hope exclusively on what Christ has promised us as our eternal inheritance. You say, what is that? That we will know Christ, be like Christ, and one day get to be with Christ? In a place where there is no more crying, where there is no more pain, where all sad things come untrue? When he says, set your hope on the grace, that means put the full weight of your hope. Don't cut it or water it down with anything. You ask, well, how do Christians water it down? Well, they set their hope, their happiness on other things that God needs to provide for them to be happy. They say, I'm glad that I know Christ. I'm glad to be like Christ. I'm glad for the promise to be with him one day. But God, I I really need you to to, to promise me and provide me with with good health. I need you to provide me with with good kids, a, a great marriage, and lots of money. And then when God doesn't come through on one of those things, we accuse God of letting us down. And so I simply want to ask you, what do you feel like God has to provide for you in order to fulfill his promise to you? In fact, before I I teach any further on this, just take a second. I want you to answer this question for yourself. Write it down. Figure out what it is. What has to happen in your life for you to feel like God loves you and is keeping his promise to you? What is that? And as you're thinking about what that is, listen, there's a lot of things that I want God to provide for me. I hope that he gives me good health. I hope that he gives me a good marriage. I hope that he gives me success in my job. I hope that that he prospers me financially. And he's a good father, so I anticipate that he may give me a lot of those things. But listen, my hope, my hope is in knowing Christ, being like Christ, and one day being with Christ. And so if in God's plan I do without some of those things, if I suffer, I will be satisfied because my hope, my hope is in who God is for me and what he's doing in me. Christians love Romans 8.28, for we know that God works for the good in all things for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, what is that purpose? The very next next verse, Paul says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, to know Christ, to be like Christ. That's how they're working together for good. A lot of Christians memorize Romans 8, 28. God works for the good in all things. But they don't go on to memorize the next verse, which tells you what that good purpose is. It's to know Christ and to be conformed into his image. And so, yes, pray and ask God to bless you and to take care of you now. But put your hope, put your hope in knowing Christ, 
being like Christ and being with Christ. And if in a particular season that's all that he gives you, you can be satisfied in that. Number three, don't look back. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Before you came to Christ, your life aspirations came out of a wrong way of looking at the world. Peter says, evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Wrong desires that grew out of wrong ways of looking at the world. So you thought making lots of money would make you happy. And then you saw that the people with the most money don't seem to be the happiest. Or maybe you thought romance was the key. Hip-hop star Drake said in an interview, there was a point where I felt like I needed to keep the company of a different woman every night. I was trying to fill a void. But in those moments after sex, I'd know it wasn't working. Those quiet moments are the realest moments a man will ever have in his life. The next day, I'd convince myself to do it again. But during that time, I knew it wasn't working. Or movie star Matt Dillon recently said, most Hollywood people are relationship junkies. You get a high off of a relationship like a drug, then crash off of it. And so you go on from one hit to the next. Or maybe you thought being liked by others was the key. I'm reminded of what Katy Perry posted on Instagram. A hundred million digital singles and still insecure. Maybe you thought you'd find it by being the best. I feel like this was captured so vividly in the last dance documentary last summer of Michael Jordan and the 1998 Chicago Bulls. MJ was the greatest there ever was. But it didn't lead him to happiness, did it? It led him to a deep unsettledness and an emptiness. When, when you assumed that, that with you in charge, life would make you happy, but, but you found that you woke up to the fact that it just wasn't true. Or maybe you just considered the cross. If Jesus Christ is true, then the way of rebellion against God only leads to death. Real life is found only from the resurrection. And so you turned your back on your self-willed way of living. You surrendered to Christ. You showed that by being baptized, declaring that you were buried to your old way of living. You were raised to new life in Christ. But what Peter is saying is that it's easy to fall back into those old ways of living. You sense some unhappiness or some discontent. And so it's easy to think, well, I just need more money. I need a different living situation. I need to get vengeance on someone. And Peter says, no, 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 you already recognize those ways don't work. Don't go back there. Those old desires come out of ignorance. A while back, I was having a hard time seeing out of my contacts, and I noticed that they were getting worse and worse, and so I scheduled an appointment thinking that my prescription might have changed. Now, I wear these hard uh, contact lenses, they're not the disposable kind, and they're not really cheap either, and so I was a little bummed because I thought this was going to set me back a few hundred dollars, I was going to have to get new lenses, the ones that I had weren't that old to begin with, and so I sat down and, and the doctor was looking at my contacts and almost immediately spots the problem. Can you believe this? The problem was my own negligence. I hadn't been cleaning my contacts like I should have, and there was all this protein built up and pollen and all this junk on there. And so she gave me this deep cleaning solution, and the next morning, guess what? They were back to normal. Now I know to clean my contacts each day. I know better than to make the same mistake. 
I'm not going to to go back and, and blame my contacts for the wrong way that I was taking care of them. If they're blurry, I clean them. You had desires that came from the wrong ways of dealing with the emptiness in your heart. Don't go back to the old ways of ignorance. Don't assume, I just need more money. I need out of this marriage. I just need to get married. I just need to get even with that person. If you are unhappy, press into the hope of knowing Christ, being like Christ, and being with him one day. So I want us to take a moment and confess this to God. God, forgive me for continually running back to fill in the blank. How would you answer that? Whatever it is, write it down. As you're thinking about that, as you're writing about that, number four, be weird. Be weird. Verses 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Holiness. That's a strange word for most Americans. It's not very attractive either. The word conjures up images of something that's sterile, boring, bright, white, colorless light, or maybe pious, prudish religiosity that's just no fun. But I want you to think of holiness as wholeness, W-H. Holiness equals wholeness, which is where we get the English word, by the way. Holiness is holy, perfect goodness, holy, perfect justice, holy, perfect integrity and love. We're attracted to that, right? Perfect justice, perfect beauty, perfect love. Who wants a government that's partially unjust? What girl wants to marry a guy that's partially truthful, partially faithful, partially loving? God is pure goodness. So things like impurity and injustice and deception are repulsive to him. Habakkuk 1.13 says that he is of such pure eyes that he cannot behold evil. That doesn't mean that evil is invisible to him. It just means that he can't look at it with neutral emotion. So think of, of, about watching something that, that you find repulsive. It could be torture, injustice, You see something presented, a a movie or a documentary that shows you cruelty or abuse or or the damages of marital infidelity or, or racial injustice. What happens? You watch that and you can't stay neutral. You you respond, you react viscerally. And that's what God is like with all unholiness. The Hebrew word for holy, Kadesh, literally means cut away. You are you are cut away from the world. You're separate totally different. You're going to seem weird to everyone around you now because you're literally cut from a different cloth. Again, I'll say it, if, if you don't seem weird to everyone around you, isn't it possible that you are more like the world than you are God? Isn't it possible that you're not actually born again, that you're still a member of the world's family instead of God's? So let me ask you, financially, Are you out of sync with this world? If you're doing what God says to do with your money, you're going to be at least three steps behind of the people who make the same amount of money as you. Let me explain. The average person in the U.S. carries about $6,300 in credit card debt. God tells us as much as possible to live without debt. 
And so if we're following his counsel, we're not going to be spending above our income for the latest TVs or the nicest cars or, or the most expensive vacation. God also tells you to give at least the first 10% to him, a, a tithe, which the world doesn't do. And God tells us to save wisely. Again, think of that as 10%, which most don't do. That puts you at least three steps behind everyone else who makes the same amount as you. I'm telling you, that is noticeable. You drive different cars. You go on different vacations. You live in different level homes. You wear different clothes. If your spending habits don't differ from everyone around you in big ways, again, you may be more like the world than you realize. You have reason to question if you're actually a citizen of heaven. In Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45, where Peter is quoting from here with this command to be holy, we learn that God commanded the Israelites to leave the edges of their fields unharvested. They were to only harvest the middle of the field and to leave the edges of the fields easily accessible for the poor so that the poor could glean from those sections and eat. No one else in the ancient world did that. Farmers would, like most business owners today, try to wring out every last cent of profit from their yield. That, that's just smart business. But God wanted Israel to be different so that foreigners would, would walk past Israelite fields and say, why, why didn't you harvest the edges? And they would say, it's because we serve a God who cares for the poor and shares with them, and so we do also. Hear me. It is not sinful to be wealthy, but you need to have edges. You have bigger fields, so you harvest more, but you should also have bigger edges too. Are you sexually out of sync with the world? I've always loved St. Augustine's words. He says that Christians are more out of sync with the world in their relationship with three things, money, power, and sex. The world is stingy with its money, but promiscuous with its sex. Christians, by contrast, are promiscuous with our money and our power, but we're stingy with, with our sex, which is the opposite of the world. And the reason we do that is because we know that sex represents a love like God's love, where you give yourself entirely to a person, which is what we do in sex. And we know that our resources are to be used like Jesus's, which means they're poured out to bless and to help others. And so we're crazy generous with our money. Are you out of sync with the world and how you handle your anger and frustration? How do people in the world handle their anger? They rage, they go for vengeance, or they avoid conflict, they harbor grudges and gossip. What did Christ do? He never sought vengeance. He confronted selflessly and patiently, and then he forgave and moved on and he kept no record of wrongs. Be holy, Peter says. Be separate in how you act, showing you have a different hope and a different judge and a different perspective on life than everyone around you. Number five, stand amazed. Verse 17, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Literally what he's saying is live in fear, which sounds like the opposite of what we usually say the gospel is. Perfect love casts out fear, we say. But the best way to think of fear here is awe. Why stand in awe? We serve a God, he says, who judges impartially. 
Everybody is going to be judged fully and impartially based on what they did and why they did it. Nobody is getting away with injustice. Peter goes on in verses 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The same God who will judge everyone impartially gave Christ to us to satisfy God's judgment against us. Though our deeds and our motives were bad like everyone else's, Peter says God redeemed us by suffering judgment in our place. To save us, it cost God something immense. He didn't save us through some trifling gesture, a wave of a wand, or a set of rules to follow. He gave his own son to be cursed, humiliated, and tortured in our place. That should make us stand in reverent awe. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. King David said it this way in Psalm 130, verse 4, but with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. Meditating on the price of our salvation, how great the judgment of God was against us, how much he paid, makes us stand in wonder of God. It makes us afraid of ever being apart from him again. It makes us in awe of the treasure he has now given us. It's fear and awe, but it's a confident fear, a fear of what your life would be like without him and in awe of how secure you are with him. The price of our forgiveness makes us stand in awe. There's none like our God. There's none beside our God. He's worthy of all the praise we could ever give him. Lastly, number six, love extravagantly. Verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. The last command is to love. We do that because we're a part of a new family, united by a common salvation and a common hope. The gospel gives us a, a remarkable ability to love people. The gospel gives us patience with the flaws of others because we recognize that we had a bunch of flaws of our own when Jesus saved us and forgave us. It frees us from the tyranny of needing to, other people to, to be happy so that we can stop using them and start loving them. When you're codependent on somebody, you can't love them. You use them. When you need other people to recognize you so that you can find meaning, and, and that's what makes you good and nice and kind so that they'll rec recognize your goodness, that means that you're not doing it, you're not doing that goodness out of the overflow of your heart, but you're doing it in order to win their affection. Your, your good deeds are serving yourself, not loving them. When you need to be the best in order to feel valuable, that puts you always in competition with everyone. You can't love them because you're competing with them for a sense of self-worth. But the gospel gives you the ability to love. It makes you complete in God so that you can love others. It shows you patience so that you can show it to others. We can love because he first loved us. That's the game plan. That's our game plan as exiles. Obedience to these commands flow out of our hope and our imperishable inheritance. Obedience is fueled by our hope in Christ. 
Let's look at the last two verses. Verse 24, for all people are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. He's quoting from Isaiah 40. Everything else we live for fades. Every foundation crumbles. But Christ, Peter says, is eternal. His love went farther for us than anyone had ever gone. His love will endure longer than everything else. Compared to his love, the most permanent things on earth are like grass that appear one week and are gone the next. Peter's question is, have you found this hope that makes obedience to these commands easy? I think a number of you have had your foundations rocked over the last 18 months. Maybe he's gotten your attention. I can tell you for some of you, he's trying. The greatest invitation ever given came from Christ. He said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. If you give your life to him, he can forgive your sin, give you new life. He promises to bear you up under all your troubles. He'll be your guide when you feel lost, your support when you feel broken, your comforter when you feel overwhelmed. Has he been speaking to you since this pandemic started? Is he inviting you to come to him? Is he doing that now? Submit to him, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Before we sing and worship together, would you pray with me? God, I thank you that you have not left us to our own devices, trying to navigate this world on our own. You've given us your word. God, I pray that, that we, would, we would take this game plan, these, these commands that we're to obey, and I pray, God, that, that we would live these out by the power of your spirit, knowing that we have the ability and the, and the power to do it because Jesus fulfilled it for us. It's by submitting to you that your commands are easy, not burdensome. God, I pray that if there's anybody here who's never received the hope of knowing you, of being with you, I pray that today would be the day that they receive Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of their life. They would, they would understand that, that you've created them for a home that's not here, but home with you for all of eternity. I pray that all of us would embrace our identity as exiles, that we would look different to the world around us because we have a hope, an imperishable hope, an inheritance for all eternity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.